When Kellyanne Appleton was a young girl, she was sexually abused by her parish priest. Being chosen to spend extra time with her priest was a true honor. She lived with shame and feelings of unworthiness most of her life. Then she started speaking about it. And Kellyanne is with me on the show today. Hi, Kellyanne. How are you today? I'm good, Janice. Thanks for coming on today and and talking about the sexual abuse you experienced uh, with your priest when you were a young girl, because it it is a very difficult topic to talk about in many, many, many girls and boys grow up feeling such shame and not being able to talk about it. So could you just tell me, um, I believe that, that it started when you were 10 years old. So could you just tell me the story about that? Sure. Um, it actually started when I was nine. I grew up in a family, um, a practicing Catholic family. Um, Church was very important to my family. We were practicing members. We went to church every Sunday. I went to a Catholic school. Um, And I, my family, I learned through my parents that priests were right up there, you know, not quite as holy as God, but um, they were to be respected and kind of felt like they could do no wrong. And when I was nine years old, um, there was a priest at our church who would often invite me and a friend to go and help them with things. We would fold bulletins, um, you know, just help with those kind of things. And that was certainly, we thought we were very special, um, you know, being asked to do those kind of things. And my parents, of course, saw nothing wrong with it. So, we would go over and do that. Um, And he began to groom us, which I now know that all pedophiles do, um, by making us feel special, by giving us gifts, by offering us um, candy and pop and those kind of things. And um, essentially the sexual abuse began kind of just as a um, continuation of that, of him making us feel comfortable and special. So we continued to go um, and visit him almost on a weekly basis on the weekends. And when he invited us and we didn't go, he would make us feel guilty. So it was something that I continued to do and that's actually part of the struggle that I had to kind of come to terms with was the fact that I kept going back. Um, And it continued for about two years. And I had a lot of shame over that, that I kept going back. But I now know I've forgiven that nine-year-old little girl um, because I was a little girl and I was being manipulated by a master pedophile. And it was not my fault, but that has taken me a long time to come to terms with that. Yeah, um, did you feel that way when you were nine, 10 and 11 years old that it, did you already have that in your head that something wrong was happening um, and that it was your fault, not the fault of 
the priest, who, as you said, is you know above reproach. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I didn't initially because, of course, in the mind of a nine-year-old little girl, when you have learned that the priest is up there um, close to God, there was so much confusion. Like, how could he be doing something wrong, even though it didn't feel right? It certainly felt like there was something wrong. But of course, I had no idea. Um, just so much confusion for me. So, well, and you wouldn't have known anything about Saxon anyway, nothing. I mean, at that age. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I had no idea um, about anything that was happening. It was, it was just, I, I've blocked a lot of the memories about it. So, but I do remember that um, it was at a point where the abuse had kind of begun to reach a new level. That was when I made a decision I was never going back. So obviously something in me at that point said, you can't go back there. Um, he continued to make me feel very guilty for not going back. Um, and my, my parents questioned why I wasn't going back. Um, but it was, yeah, there was obviously something in me that, that I had to make that decision. I didn't tell my parents at that point what had happened. It was about, um, about a year or two later when I finally told my parents. Why were you, I mean, I know that a lot of children, especially younger children who are subject to sexual abuse feel like, like you said, like it's your fault and you, you can't talk to anybody about it. What what happened after after a couple of years? Because then you would have been what fourteen or fifteen. Well, I was only um, about twelve, actually. So I was about oh, okay. twelve when what happened was that, um, and I remember this day so clearly. My sister, who was three years younger than me, started to tell my parents that he was taking pictures of her because she was now going to see him. Oh her and her friend, and she told them about taking pictures. And I had a very emotional reaction at that time. And I started to cry and I said, don't let her go. So that was how it came out. I had no intentions of telling them. Um, I don't know that I ever would have, maybe at some point, but but that was the catalyst for me. It really, I needed to protect her. So what happened at that point was I told them and they believed me. And we never set foot in that church again. But we never talked about the abuse again. And that's great. I mean, for your parents, because I think, and I, I don't know this for a fact, but in, in kind of what I've, I've read, I think that often parents, and not in a bad way, I'm not blaming parents at all, it's hard for the parent to accept that a 12-year-old is, is talking about a priest in that way because they also see the, the priest as above reproach. So it must be very difficult um, for parents to to 
say, okay, this is, this is not right. I believe you. And -hmm. we're not going to that, that church anymore. Yeah. Um, And it's, I think that, um, because I've, know a lot of women who um, obviously there were 46 other women who came forward um, to accuse him uh, of abuse. And there were actually probably hundreds more that we know of or that we don't know of. Um, And many of them did tell and they weren't believed. So I was very fortunate. And I mean, you have to remember this was 40 years ago, more than 40 years ago. Um, when these kind of things weren't talked about. So I was very fortunate in that I was believed. And even though you were believed, I mean, the level of shame for kids who are not believed and they're never, you know, not able to get past, I did something wrong. Um, but even though you were, you were um, you're with your family and they, you know, sort of were embracing you, protecting you and believing what you said, you still left, lived for many, many years with an immense amount of shame. Well, what happened, and of course, my parents did everything they knew how to do at the time. They sought advice, they, and what they believed was that the best thing was to never talk about it again. We know now that isn't the truth. We know now that that's not how you deal with traumatic situations, but they didn't know. They did the best they could trying to protect me. But what I have learned is that that silence just reinforced that shame for me. It made me believe that what I had been a part of was so shameful, so terrible that it could not be spoken about. When did you start speaking about it publicly? Um, I know that uh, that the priest was found guilty, I believe in 2006 of the 47 cases of abuse that you were that you were talking about. And I also know that you and a group of women spoke, at a conference uh, and spoke to a large group of priests about what had happened to you. Was that the first time you talked about it publicly? Because there is one thing to accept, you know, that the, the embracing of your, your family and maybe close friends. It's a whole different thing to go out and publicly speak about it. Yeah. When I, it was, it was something that I never thought, I thought I had put, you know, kind of put it away. It was in a box. Um, and that it would never really come back. But once one woman came forward and put it out there in the paper that she was looking, they were looking for people who might have also been abused. It was that time that I made a decision. And just having to go, I spoke to my priest, I was a practicing Catholic at that time. I spoke to my priest I spoke to um, the police and I reported the abuse. And it was actually as just after the, kind of in the midst of the trial and all of those things that I started speaking a little bit more publicly. So I did um, speak at an event that was kind of around um, victim services. So I spoke at that. And then, yes, I was asked, um, I then spoke, I spoke at two events like that. And then I was asked to, by the diocese to speak to all of their priests and lay people. 
And that was an incredibly powerful experience because I had kept my voice silent for so long about this. And I was finally able to find my voice to talk about it. At that time in the story, I was still very much in the story. I was very much still in victim mode, of course, which I should have been. This was all, I was reliving all this. I was going through the trial. I was dealing with all those emotions. So I was very angry um, as I shared publicly at that time. Um, I also did a... Um, um, a show for uh, the Fifth Estate where they talked about my story and some of the other women who had been involved. So I felt it was the time. And I, I did ask my, my family about that. My children were teenagers at the time. And I, I told them, I asked their permission. Is it okay? Because I knew they would be, I live in a small town. I knew they would be impacted by this. And um, we decided as a family that, yes, I was going to speak out. So that's well, what was the reaction um, from your friends and, um, and for your kids? It, it was really challenging. Um, some people were incredibly supportive of myself and um, my family. Other people were not. Other people were really angry that I was speaking out. Um, people were my because children, you were speaking out against a priest specifically, exactly, and against the Catholic Church, right? So remember, at this time, I was also a Catholic school teacher. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, I was teaching in the Catholic school system, so it it became very. Um, I had a lot of a lot of people who did not like what I was doing. Um, and that was that was hard to accept, but I knew in speaking out that I was going to I was going to have supporters and I was going to have a lot of people who would be angry with me. And I was okay with that. And it was a challenging time because of course I was going through so many emotions and to have some haters who would actually call me on the phone and strangers <laughs> who would call me on the phone and, and tell me that I was what I was doing was terrible. And, um, and I did have a few people who I thought were kind of acquaintances, who um, really turned on me too. So but, but I was I didn't regret what I had done. Well, because at the same time, your message is going out to thousands and thousands of, um, well, I mean, when you think just of the number of people who would have seen the Fifth Estate, thousands and thousands of um, young women, uh, girls even, and um, people who had women, well, and again, men, right? Because it's, I, I think that the shame level and so on, but, but specifically to women who, could hear what you said and relate and say, this happened to me too, and I haven't been able to speak about it. And that's pre pretty freeing. Um, and then you took this experience, um, and just like you said, you're just not gonna be a victim anymore. And you took that experience and you've translated that into 
coaching women who have experienced sexual abuse? Yeah, it it took me, um, it's taken me about 15 years to, to really, after I spoke out at the initial time, um, I really didn't speak out again after that. And it was only, um, it was, it was, I don't know, last October, where I saw a post about a collaborative book that was being written. And they were looking for another author. And it was about women who had struggled with their worthiness. And it really spoke to me. And that was the catalyst for me to start speaking out again. So since then, I'm at a totally different place in my journey now. Um, my coach calls it the difference between being in your story and being on your story. So I speak now from a place of being on my story. I have, I've done a lot of healing. I've done a lot of personal work um, over those 15 years to get me to where I am. But I look at it with a different perspective. What happened to me now, I can pull the lessons from it. and I believe that the lessons that I have been able to pull can help other women. And I don't certainly don't deal, um, I don't coach women who have necessarily had been victims of sexual abuse. Although I have had women reach out to me who do share those experiences, but the wisdom and the, the information, the insights that I have Um, taken away from my journey and the transformation that I've been able to create in myself, I believe can help other women. Well, it is interesting because women, um, it's so hard for women to feel smart and, uh, you know, and good at what they do. Um, And so I can see what you're saying that that women tend to think and can think poorly of themselves. Mm -hmm. It seems to be an innate emotion that we have. So uh, if I was having this conversation with you and I was having problems with worthiness, and I'm not saying that I don't, but, but I would maybe at first say, well, I wasn't sexually abused. So, you know, Kellyanne, like, you know, I feel like I can't say to her that I don't feel worthy because your situation is it would be in my mind so much worse. Uh, worse, but worthiness and a lack of worthiness is the same across the board in a way. It may be at different levels of uh, time to heal, but um, it's there. Exactly, and it's whether or not you've had the way I look at things is that we all have traumas in our life, whether it's trauma with a capital T or trauma with a small T. That's a good way to look at it. I like that. And there are so many things that happen in our life, especially in our early childhood that we maybe don't think had an impact on us, but they did. And that is when our subconscious is being formed is those early years. So whether it was you were maybe bullied, maybe you um, 
were told, you know, you were too much. Maybe you were told you weren't smart by a teacher. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't have to be a big T trauma for it to negatively impact your self-image or your um, self-worth. As you said, I believe there are so many of us who struggle and nobody has a perfect self-image or self-worth story. We all struggle to a certain extent. And that, what I have learned is that you cannot outperform that. That image you have of yourself, you can't work hard enough, you can't do enough things, you can't get enough degrees, you can't get enough skills to actually outperform that. That will keep you stuck, it will keep you where you are. The only way is to change it. And that requires work. Well, how would a person go about changing it? We're, we're talking about self-sexual abuse in this interview. So maybe just, just kind of quickly walk me through where someone starts with that kind of shame and how they walk through it and come out the other end feeling worthy. And it, what I have learned is it's all, and this is a much longer interview, but it's subconscious programming. So your subconscious mind runs the show. You will always act in alignment with the beliefs that are in your subconscious mind. My subconscious mind believed that I was not worthy, that I was not good enough um, from those early childhood experiences. So what happened is everything that I did, I looked for evidence of that. And I would find it all the time. So it's reprogramming your subconscious mind, which is, can be done because I've done it. So that's what I work with people now to do is to reprogram it. So there are lots of things you can do to reprogram, not some simple things that I can tell you, you know, right now, because it's not a quick fix. It takes effort and it takes time, but the freedom on the other side of it is so worth the work. Yeah, it is hard to turn your thinking around, absolutely, because you can always find reasons. And I think this is human nature, right? You can always find reasons why you're not good enough. It's way harder to find those reasons that you are good enough. The the book is coming out. Yes, so it's gonna be, it's um, right now it is in, it's at the, at the printers. Uh, we don't know any exact date. It's going to be available on Amazon. The title of the book is She is Worthy. And it's a collaborative book with um, 10 other women. And we each have written a chapter about our story and our journey to find our worthiness. And these are women, not all of the women are coming from a sexually abusive experience. It's not, a, not at all. It's okay. women with all different stories. So the beauty of it is that I believe everybody will see themselves in somebody's story. And that's, to me, that's the purpose of sharing your story is that you never, you never know who will see themselves or who will gain hope from your story. It, in my mind, if one person walks away from this interview saying, 
I see myself in that. That's what's important. So thank you so much for, for coming on today and talking about it. Well, thank you for having me, Janice. I appreciate the opportunity.